Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 549, Who's on Trial? What was the Sanhedrin and what was its function? Why didn't Jesus just give a straight answer when the high priest asked him if he was the Messiah? And what's the difference between repentance and regret? Settle in, we've got 50 verses to cover this week as we study Jesus' trial in Matthew 26 and 27. Hello, everyone. Good to be together again on this long journey through Matthew's Gospel. This week, episode 49, we're going to be looking at the whole trial sequence from the end of chapter 26 into the first half of chapter 27. We're, we're coming into a, um, a section that focuses on Jesus being handed over. Just to remember in Matthew 20, Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. He uses, uh, in just two chapters, he uses the Greek word for handed over uh, 18 times. What's going on here? Matthew wants us to know that although Jesus is about to be handed over again and again, uh, he, is, he is in control. Um, you know, as we turn the perspective of what we're going to look at today, we see that these people, Caiaphas, Pilate, the crowd, etc., they're really the ones on trial in the court of heaven. This entire section is framed in the context of a scripture that would have been very, very familiar uh, to the Jews and also to Matthew's audience, the early church. It's from Isaiah 53, verse 7. Although he was ill-treated, he opened not his mouth. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before his shearers, so he opens not his mouth. You know, the the non-defensiveness that Jesus taught so thoroughly in the Sermon on the Mount, we now watch him live that out uh, under the pressure of, of what's going on all around him, and he lives it out perfectly and to the full. So let's jump in now and and look first starting at chapter 26 verse 57 Jesus before the high priest and the Sanhedrin Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas the high priest in whose house the scribes and the elders had gathered but Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside he sat with the guards in order to see how this would end now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for false testimony against Jesus so they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But Jesus was silent. Then the high priest said to him, I put you under oath before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I was sharing with some friends last night that I've been reading the scriptures for, you know, more than 45 years. And even though I understand, at least to some degree, the theological basis for this whole section we're looking at today, and I understand that ultimately it leads to, to victory, it always, for 45 years, it brings a soberness and really a, a sadness to me. And I've been aware of that as I've prepared this past week. Jesus is now in Caiaphas' palace. Uh, members of the Sanhedrin have gathered in the middle of the night. Now, just to give you a little background, we often hear of the Sanhedrin, but what, who were they? Well, the Sanhedrin was established several hundred years earlier um, to replace the banished kingship. 
that uh, Israel lost uh, at the exile. The Sanhedrin was made up of three groups of people. The, uh, the aristocratic chief priests. And we shared before that they're powerful, they're wealthy, um, and uh, they're, they're kind of at the top of the pyramid. The second group were the scribes, the, the Bible teachers. And, and economically uh, and socially, they were from a much, much more modest uh, rank. But the people understood they were more serious about the scripture than the chief priests. And then the elders. And really, these were just the influencers in society. They were mainly the, the rich landowners. So that is who he's standing before. Now, the other thing I want us to see in this section is, is what does the Jewish law say about trying someone? Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin was illegal, according to Jewish law on several counts. And there's even more, but I'm going to give you five. One, according to Jewish law, a trial must be held in the daytime. Number two, it must take place in a specified courtroom. There were only three in all of Israel at that time, and none of them was the house of the high priest. Number three, the trial must begin by hearing the case for the defense. Number four, the trial must not reach a conclusion on the same day that the trial begins giving opportunity for sober second thought, etc. And number five, according to Jewish law, a trial must not be held on the eve of a festival or a Sabbath. So in all these things, right there with the Sanhedrin, the law was broken in his trial. Verse 61, two of the witnesses, false witnesses, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple. John 2.19, Jesus answered them, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Uh, The temple we've talked about before is such a key issue uh, in understanding the role of Jesus. Uh, Matthew Uh, 12.6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. So what's going on? What has them so enraged? The core issue for the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, is that Jesus is a threat to their religious power structures and to their dominant position under Roman rule. They've made peace with Rome and and they get a powerful position in exchange. You see, the, the dark powers, the powers that be, always seek to control. And they always are threatened and stand against anything that, that threatens the status quo. We need to remember that in all settings. Verse 63, then the high priest said to Jesus, I put you under oath before the living God. This is serious. <laughs> he says, before the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, there's only one other time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus was asked this question. And when was it? It was in chapter 4, the temptation. It was Satan who asked that question. And now Caiaphas is asking the very same question, which takes us right back to Matthew 16, when Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. We must be aware that the enemy uses our weaknesses, our anger, our even hatred to do his bidding. This question is the crux of the rising conflict that's been going on for many, many chapters. It's it's the crux of the conflict, not only in the context of, of Matthew's narrative, but also it is in the sense of the ultimate cosmic battle between the powers of darkness and God. And we're going to see how victory comes through the cross, but it is at the center of it. Now, when Caiaphas asks him this question, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? It, it, 
it's a very complex issue. It puts Jesus in a really difficult place. And here's why. If he says, no, no, I'm not the Messiah, some people are going to hear that, that he is backing away. He is rejecting something that up till now he has never denied. Remember, he never denied when Peter said, thou art the Christ, thou art the Messiah. But if he affirms that he's the Messiah, he knows that it would very likely leave uh, the followers with the wrong idea. To assume that by saying he's the Messiah, he is declaring himself to be the one who will conquer Israel's enemies and will establish an earthly kingdom. And this is why he responded so ambiguously. He didn't say yes, he didn't say no, he just said, you have said so. Verse 64, you've said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Here we see the paradox, and it's an important one. Jesus' seeming powerlessness at this trial, and yet at the same time, he claims to be all-powerful. This paradox is at the heart of the Christian faith. Paul addresses it many times, but one of the clearest is 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where the Lord speaks to Paul and says, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. This is at the heart of the gospel. He is victorious by not fighting back. His strength is made perfect in weakness. You know, this week I had a good friend phone me and ask me what I think of uh, the Seven Mountains, uh, which is kind of almost a movement now. Um, that that talks about uh, we can affect society by conquering these seven mountains, education, medicine, government, etc. And he asked me what I think of it. And because uh, it's certainly out there. And, and I said, I don't think very much of it that's good. I first actually encountered the fellow who... who who teaches this and professes this 20 years ago. But uh, we have a long history of the church trying to, to bring the kingdom by power, power over the government. It goes all the way back to the 4th century Constantine, but it's happened again and again and again. It happened with the moral majority. It's coming around one more time, and, and, and that's its history. I could go further back. It goes all the way back to Geneva in the 16th century. So let me just say this. What I said to my friend is, the church is not to live in and be established through the seven mountains, but the seven valleys. God's blessing, Jesus said, belongs to the poor in spirit, to those who mourn, to the meek, to the merciful. In case we didn't get it, a little later he said, learn from me for I am meek and lowly. It's so counterintuitive. It fights so hard, not only against our flesh, but against the systems of the world, religious systems, political systems. By the way, when he said that, this is his final speech, very short that it is, before his dying words on the cross. His final declaration of who he really is calls us to lift our spiritual eyes from the natural and temporal to the heavenly and the eternal. Jesus is the one who Daniel saw when he wrote this. This is from Daniel 7. There was before me one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. 
All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Folks, it is a heavenly and eternal kingdom, kingdom of God. It is not brought about through our efforts or our protests or our trying to take over systems. This is the one who Daniel saw. All authority coming in the clouds. Let's go on. Verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes. And he said, he's blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? And they all answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face, and they struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who is it that struck you? The the trial quickly degenerates into violence and mockery of Jesus. It's really a mockery of a trial. And so again, we have the paradox. His authority, his strength is established by not being defensive, by not fighting back. You know, he remains true to what he taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't fight back. Turn the other cheek. Like many of you, I'm a great admirer of Martin Luther King, and and I have read and looked at a lot of the things that came out of that movement. And... uh, One of the interesting things you may not know is that all of those who followed Martin Luther King into the various demonstrations, which were always non-violent, those followers were trained for up to 18 months to put up with physical abuse, being spat upon, being called names. Martin Luther King saw the power of the Sermon on the Mount and applied it to a movement, and uh, it began to bring a change that is still changing in this day. Okay, let's move from him before the Sanhedrin, and let's talk about Peter's denial. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But Peter denied it before all of them, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. And when he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you are also one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to curse, and he swore an oath, I do not know the man. And at that moment, the cock crowed. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said, Before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Folks, there's two trials going on here right now at once. Matthew has structured this. This is what happened, but he sees it. I, I, I believe with all my heart he sees this as a series of trials. There's two trials. Jesus, it's a trial of messiahship. Peter, it's a trial of discipleship. Three times Jesus is confronted by verbal threats. Three times Peter is tested by verbal statements that he sees as a threat. When Jesus is being taunted, prophesy to us, the irony is that his prophecy regarding Peter is being fulfilled at that very moment. What's going on here? Matthew is showing us that our best intentions, our determination, are not enough to rescue us from ourselves. John Calvin put it this way, Peter's fall brilliantly mirrors our own infirmity. His repentance, in turn, is a memorable demonstration for us of God's goodness and mercy. The story told of one man contains teaching of the general, and indeed prime benefit for the whole church. 
It teaches those who stand to take care and caution. It encourages the fallen to trust in the pardon. You know, it was only a few, few short hours before that Jesus had said, You will become, you will all become deserters because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Though all become deserters because of you, I will never desert you. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. This is all about contrasts today, folks, what we're seeing. Whereas Jesus remained true to his own words, like the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't fight back. Um, when, when Peter struck the servant with a sword, he said, stop it, and healed him. He didn't argue with his accusers. But Peter fails not only to keep Jesus' words, but even his very own. Peter's heart is on trial here. Matthew tells the story of Peter in three ascending scenes, with each scene the, the pressure on Peter builds and builds. First of all, he's challenged by a simple servant girl on her own. Isn't that interesting? He was so threatened. Then, from another servant girl who appeals to the bystanders. And thirdly, from a whole group of bystanders who confront him. And it's interesting the way Matthew presents it because as Peter is denying Jesus by these three stages, there's also a physical distancing going on. First, we see him at the fireside in the courtyard. Then he backs up to the gate. And finally, he escapes outside. So in each of these encounters, his denial becomes stronger and stronger. And then verse 75 that we know well, and Peter remembered what Jesus had said before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. St. Augustine said this, to wash away the sin of denial, Peter needed the baptism of tears. You know, this episode marked Peter for life. You know, he was the preeminent disciple in the early church. He was the one whose sermon on Pentecost inaugurated the church. He was the one who first opened the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10. And and he's even the one who followed Jesus all the way to his own crucifixion in the mid-60s in Rome. But in the midst of all of this, he was marked by his failure, and he never forgot it. In his great failure... He discovered the depth of God's grace and forgiveness. His failure did not disqualify Peter, but he never forgot it. He never brushed it off. He never said, oh, that's in the past. I've shared with many, I've shared with my four sons, if you're going to follow someone, make sure you follow someone who walks with a limp. I think I've said it on this podcast before. He wants us to be completely dependent on him. He wants to give us, as Song of Solomon says in 8.5, a leaning heart. Who is this who leans upon her lover? You know, the early church tradition says that for the rest of his life, whenever Peter heard a rooster crow, he began to weep. As a 19th century preacher and theologian said, God has given Peter to us that all may fear and none may presume and that all may hope. I love that quote. St. Gregory, one of the early church fathers, asks why God allowed Peter to fall like this. And he says, this we know was a great 
dispensation of the divine mercy so that he who was to be the shepherd of the church might learn through his own fall to have compassion on others. God, therefore, first shows him to himself and then places him over others to learn through his own weakness how to bear mercifully with the weakness of others. I was sharing with some friends in my living room last night something that I I shared here early in the series, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and, and the, the workers come to the landowner and they say, well, why don't we just pull out those weeds right now? And he says, no, we'll wait till later. And we see that as final judgment, etc. But as we've learned, there are multiple layers of deep meaning in all the verses, especially in the parables. And I have come to believe that one of the meanings of the wheat and the tares is that we get frustrated. Lord, I'm just so tired of this weakness in me, whatever it may be, anger, patience, impatience, whatever it may be. But the Lord says, no, uh, they're doing something in your life that's good, and I'm in no hurry to remove them. I think we see a wonderful example here of the fruit of that with Peter. Let's move on to Judas. Uh, the, the suicide of Judas, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. They bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. That's a key word there, folks. And returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Several points. First of all, notice that once again, Matthew's transition from one scene to another uses the term handed him over. This pattern and progression will continue throughout this whole section. Now, it's interesting because of the four gospel writers, Matthew's the only one who inserts this episode. Why did he do it? Well, I think, first of all, Matthew was comparing Peter's failure with Judas's treachery. Secondly, he's showing the fulfillment of Jesus' words about the fate of his betrayer. He's showing that Jesus speaks prophetically and accurately. Because earlier in chapter 26, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Thirdly, Matthew shows that from long before, in the Old Testament Scripture, we see in remarkable detail the pattern of Jesus' betrayal and the fate of Judas. Now, Judas was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. I've sinned, I've betrayed innocent blood. Matthew uses the Greek word for remorse or regret rather than the normal word that would have been used in that sentence, which is metanoia, to repent to turn around and change your way of thinking. Matthew seems to be clearly contrasting Peter's brokenness with Judas' despairing heart. And here's the difference. A broken heart is broken, but it it seeks forgiveness in the midst of its pain. It, it, It believes through tears in the mercy of God. But a despairing heart does not hold to any hope that anything is ever going to change or it's ever going to be forgiven. You know, maybe what we see in these words from Matthew could have been a genuine confession. Maybe it was a true repentance. We usually say it wasn't, but if we look closely, I think the door is open for the possibility. He said, I have sinned. He didn't say, oh, I made a mistake. I had a weak moment. He he doesn't blame anybody else. How easily we do this. Well, I did it, but, you know, 
The woman gave me the apple. The serpent gave me the apple. He doesn't blame any others. And the third thing he does is he says, innocent blood. He declares Jesus is innocent. I haven't got an answer here. I've got a question. Is there anyone who is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness and grace? And the chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. Surely, Matthew intended this irony. The the Sanhedrin wants to maintain ritual purity in the use of blood money in the midst of their willingness to have Jesus innocent blood be shed. Their rage has blinded them to common sense. It says that the chief priests, they consulted together. They, they, they talked about this. They formed this. John Christosom, another church father, said they did not make these decisions randomly but took counsel together. This indicates that no one is innocent of the deed. All are guilty. They took counsel together. Matthew's consistent throughout the entire Passion account that we all have sinned. All have sinned. Romans 3.23. And we're going to see in a, as this unfolds today, that the reach of this sin will soon expand outward. It's interesting Because uh, Matthew says uh, that he's quoting Jeremiah, but he's actually quoting Zechariah 11, 12, and 13. So this is Zechariah. They counted out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. And then this is said with irony, almost sarcasm. This magnificent sum at which they valued me. So I took the 30 coins and threw them to the potter in the temple of the Lord. Now, indirectly, this theme does occur in in Jeremiah, but it is Zechariah. Verse 10, they used the coins to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. That's, again, that's from uh, Zechariah, and that's exactly what they did. The blood money was unclean, so according to Old Testament law, they couldn't use it in the temple. To the Jews... Graveyards were unclean. Even today, uh, Potter's Field, many places, New York City, for example, Potter's Field refers to a pauper's grave uh, that's only for those whose identity is not known or for who are too poor for a funeral. So this is what strikes me. Even through the failure, the treachery of Judas, whereby Jesus was condemned, his condemnation served the outcast and provided a final place for them. Jesus said, I was a stranger. Now let's go to Jesus before Pilate. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. Early church father, St. Ambrose, said this, This is a wonderful passage that pours into our hearts, a disposition to bear with patience every insult that comes our way. The Lord is accursed and he's silent. He is right to be silent, for he has no need to defend himself. To defend oneself is all very well for people who are afraid of being defeated. Why should he fear? Seeing that he does not wish to be saved. The salvation of all, the sacrifices, his own, he sacrifices his own safety so that he might win the salvation of all. So they, uh, Pilate addresses him, are you the king of the Jews? He says again, with great ambiguity, you say so. He, 
he's really saying what he means by king of the Jews is not what Pilate means. These are his final words before his death cry. His response is meant to say that, Pilate, that's what you think. You don't really understand. You, you've got this wrong. You're missing the real point of who I am and why I'm here. That's what's packed into that phrase, I believe. Note, in Matthew's gospel, only Gentiles ever used the term king of the Jews. Uh, the first time, by the way, was with the Magi. In chapter 2, they came to find the king, the king of the Jews. A likely reason for Matthew's, or rather for Pilate's question, is that he'd heard about only a few days before the, the great enthusiastic crowds that had welcomed Jesus into the city. So Pilate, in his way of thinking, He's thinking of a political claim, that, that Jesus is making a claim to, to, to take over and become the king of, of Israel. But of course, Jesus' meaning is much bigger. It's a heavenly one. By the way, the, the language emphasizes you in this way. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? I think it's probably meant to express disdain. Um, Isaiah 53, 3, again, the suffering servant. He was despised and we held him of no account. Pilate held him of no account. Matthew continues to emphasize Jesus' silence before his accusers. And this is so counterintuitive. This is so far beyond the pale, it amazes Pilate. Who remains silent when they're, they're being threatened with execution? I think it's a great example for us. I think we need to to discover more the power of silence, especially in the midst of attack. When I'm attacked, when you're attacked, something rises up in us. We want to defend ourselves, but there's a power in silence. I was thinking of Jesus stooping down in the sand and saying nothing when the crowd in John 8 was accusing the woman of adultery. Well, let's move out now. He, He steps out onto this great porch. And there's a crowd, starting at verse 15. Now the festival of the governor was accustomed to release, uh, now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. Matthew is making the contrast crystal clear, incredibly stark. Do you want Jesus Barabbas or Jesus Messiah? In Mark's gospel, we're told that Barabbas had been imprisoned as a revolutionary, a a terrorist against Rome. So we have the the contrast of of a terrorist or the one who says, blessed are the peacemakers. A little later on, we'll be told that uh, Jesus was crucified between two bandits. It's the same word for these rebels, these terrorists. Likely, they were members of Barabbas' group. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Like Peter and Judas, Matthew now shows us that Pilate is under trial. Three times! Pilate is presented with a clear reason to acquit Jesus. First of all, he's amazed at Jesus when he remains silent. He sees in Jesus something different, something that surprises him. Secondly, he understands that the chief priests have brought Jesus out of jealousy and not anything legitimate. He understands that. We see it right here. And thirdly, now, as if that's not enough, his wife's dream Even a Gentile woman can see that Jesus is innocent, of course, only because God spoke to her through a dream. And now, here's the response of the chief priests. 
the chief priests and persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to have Jesus killed. They turned their attention from Pilate to the crowd. Matthew tells us that the chief priest persuaded the crowd. It becomes like a mob. But beyond that, why was the response so different than just five days earlier? I think there's two main reasons. One, this was largely a very different crowd. I mentioned that several weeks ago. Uh, on Palm Sunday, it was mainly pilgrims coming uh, with Jesus from Galilee. This crowd, early in the morning, was likely more highly concentrated from Jerusalem. And the second reason is, it's in the invisible realm. The powers of darkness are at work in the crowd. They are changing the crowd, and it's becoming a mob. And we know, we've been confronted by it many times. Even in the past year and a half, we've seen the destructive power of mob mentality. There's, there's just, it, it brings out the very worst. I think mobs have always got an aspect of the demonic of the powers that be at work. And all of them said, let him be crucified. Then Pilate asked, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Why would they demand Roman punishment, who they hated the Romans? Why would they want Roman punishment toward one of their own? This is further proof. Clearly, they had been prompted by the chief priests. Early church father, St. Leo, said this, These chief priests, having broken the divine law, were clamoring that they had no king except, Jesus, except Caesar, as if they were devoted to the Roman laws. They sought after an execution of their savagery rather than a judge for their case. They gave no reason for Jesus' execution when Pilate asked. The influence of the, of the demonic powers is now so strong, they'd been carried away even beyond reason. Verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate's gesture of washing his hands was, was pure theater. It in no way exonerated him. Because he was the final decision maker. The buck stopped with him. Again, St. Leo said this, Pilate would not dare absolve one whom all wanted to perish. The judge condemns the one who he pronounces innocent. Adding that the blood of a just man, adding the blood of a just man to an unjust people. He condemned an innocent man. There's no two ways around that. Then the people as a whole answered, and this is such a critical verse. This has done so much damage in history, folks. They answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then the people as a whole, or some translations say, or as all the people, they're either way, they're translating the word, Greek word, laos. And it, uh, Matthew used this word from the Septuagint, the Greek translation, because it meant community of God's chosen people. The community of God's chosen people cried out, his blood be on us and on our children. The on our children, if, if Matthew, we looked at the very beginning, did Matthew write this gospel in the, in the late 40s or 50s, or did he write it in the 70s? There's evidence for both. But if he wrote it after A.D. 70, then he was saying that it would be the next generation, their children, that would suffer from the Roman attack on Jerusalem. Beloved, please hear this. Matthew is not condemning all Jews for all time. 
it's got to be acknowledged that Matthew was attributing their rejection to all the people. What Matthew is showing as we enter the climax of this passion account is that Israel is making a decision not to be laos, not to be the people of God anymore. And this terrible, terrible sentence, so often quoted, his blood be upon us and on our children. Matthew was saying, that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which would happen 40 years later, was God's judgment on Israel that was being established at this time. Matthew did not mean that the suffering of all future Jews originates in this statement on this day. But tragically, this has been used by Christians, by the church, for more than a thousand years to persecute Jews. The list is so long, but you know some of them. The Crusades, Martin Luther, um, they've been forced into exile. Uh, In the the 16th and 17th century, they were forced into exile in country after country in Europe. Uh, In the last 130 years, Russia, Germany. R.T. France said this. It's a bit of a long quote, but it's very important for us to get this. The terrible words of all the laos are, I believe, best understood on reflecting that overall theology of a new people um, to God rather than as pronouncing, a new people of God rather than as pronouncing the permanent culpability of Jews as Jews. The people of Jerusalem, like their leaders, have now rejected the son sent to them by the owner of the vineyard. And the status of ethnic Israel as the chosen people of God can never be the same again. Together with the city and the temple, the people of Jerusalem represent the ancient regime, which is soon to be swept away in the events of A.D. 70. It will now be a new sort of nation made up of Jews as well as non-Jews, which will henceforth be the community of the people of God. Matthew is showing us, and it is a historical fact, that when the Jewish leaders in the crowd chose Jesus Barabbas, the revolutionary, they were starting something, a momentum, they were pointing ahead to the day when they would seek to be a nation of revolutionaries to overthrow Rome, and that ended in their total destruction. Frederick Bruner says this, when she rejected the teaching of this other Jesus, she dug her own grave, tore down her own temple, and and leveled the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus was scourged, It was part of the Roman crucifixion process to first be whipped. Some died from this uh, before they're actually crucified. The last section we'll look at today is the soldiers, who they too are on trial as they mock Jesus. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole cohort around them, around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him, and they took the reed and they struck him in the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. It's interesting, it stands out here that that this mocking of Jesus by the Roman soldiers is the only episode that Matthew gives us in detail. Not his flogging, not even the crucifixion. Maybe Matthew is making a statement about the pain of being ridiculed, being mocked, the power of words to inflict real damage. Secondly, the, the crown of thorns We often say, and it was crammed on his head to punish him. It probably wasn't. It wasn't meant to be an instrument of torture. Rather, it was a prop. This whole thing was a parody. They were making fun of Jesus. 
It was, it was a mock enthronement. The, the, the cheap substitutes for a royal robe and a proper crown and a proper scepter. Why were they so enraged? Well, I think there's a very natural reason. The Roman soldiers were hated occupiers. 24-7, they lived in an atmosphere they were hated and rejected. They were in constant uh, contact with the people who despised them and who found ways to express their disdain for the Roman soldiers. There's another aspect. Roman soldiers, like all occupiers, they, they lived in an atmosphere that, that there was always a danger of freedom fighters who killed and threatened Roman soldiers and their lives. I mean, the, we see this now all over the world, don't we? So now, at last, they have their opportunity to pour out their anger on one of who they think is a Jewish rebel leader. Because, again, they're thinking of an earthly kingdom. This is their chance to get even. And they pour it out all on Jesus. Now, Jesus is being made fun of. He's being mocked. The word for mocked is very strong in the Greek. By doing this, Jesus suffers with all who are mocked. All the social outcasts. All those who are are different, all those who are the butt of jokes. So we see even here that that at that time and forever, Jesus enters into and participates with all of the broken, in fact, with all of us in our pain and our humiliation. So let's wrap this up. Jesus has set his face as flint toward Jerusalem, as the Gospels say. He's not faltered in any way. His trial, ironically, has put others on trial. The Sanhedrin, Peter, Judas, Pilate, the Jewish mob, the Roman soldiers. In his his narrative, Matthew is shouting to us that we are all accountable, that we are all guilty. When we allow Matthew's words to penetrate deeply into our hearts, we become acquainted at a whole new level with Jesus, the man of sorrows, the one who is with us in our sorrows as only he can be, because only he remained faithful and still remains faithful. And here is where sorrow and joy meet each other. I finish with a quote from the church father, John Christostom. What could be worse than this? What is more abusive? What happened surpasses all telling. Now, when everyone is present at the great vigil on Easter Eve, this whole account is read aloud. And when it is heard by everyone, Christ is professed as God. For besides the other reasons he is worshipped, here we learn that for our sake he suffered these things and instructs us in every virtue. Let us always read them then, for their value is great, and we receive much benefit from them. When you see him jeered in words and in deeds, the knee bent in mockery, abused and subjected to extreme suffering, Even if you were made of stone, you would become softer than any wax and expel all haughtiness from your soul. God bless you. We'll be connecting again in a minute or two uh, with Tim as we discuss this. It's been great to be with you. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, 
that was, I was just thinking that I think that was probably the most verses we've ever tackled in a single episode, uh, of probably of yeah. Matthew, I think that yep. was, uh, and yet, uh, I think you were able to really take us deep in each of those sections regardless. So I, I hope people have some some really good takeaways from that. Yeah, I hope so. Um, just before we jump into some questions, I wanted to just uh, tell people that there's a new video available on our website. We get videos sent to us all the time from our, our partners uh, mm-hmm. overseas. And I'm always encouraged to see some of these that are following up with somebody who's uh, – been blessed by our programs uh, in years past, and now we're catching up with them again. And uh, we just recently got a video from Northern India from our partners there, uh, where we've got a sewing school. We one of sure. our one of our vocational schools is teaching tailoring. There was a young man who was coming out of, um, I would say, the slums. You you know what I'm talking about these these tent the bigger colonies the bigger colonies. Yep. Uh, and uh, he was wrestling with drug addiction. And uh, his dad somehow had learned about our program and, and got him into the program. Our team was able to counsel him uh, and, uh, right out of drug addiction mm-hmm. and then get him the skills. And it's really neat. you got to see the video. I'm not going to show it here. There's a lot of subtitles and stuff. Uh, but uh, Isaiah is going to include a link in the show notes. Check it out. It's He's got this little sewing desk. It's probably about the size of my desk here. Uh with a little sewing machine and he set it up like on the street corner. It's almost like in the middle of like on a boulevard in the middle of a two divided street yeah. or whatever. It's crazy. And there's pictures of him like measuring people and take, you know, and, and then sewing right here I in the street. It. I love uh, it. And you, you've got to see the look on his father's face who of mm. course just broken hearted for so many years, seeing his son struggling with addiction and then to see freedom and to see his son, uh, enjoying success and and really achieving a dream, you know, uh, this the 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 look of pride on this father's face is something to behold. You've got to see it. So, uh, well, please go watch it. It's like two and a half minutes, uh, and it's just a really neat story. And isn't that brilliant? That rather than trying to find a little shop, he went right where the people are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't wow. know if he needs a permit to be there or what, but uh, he's just—they're not big on permits no. <laughs> around there. <laughs> but he's doing his thing. That's fantastic. And he's—he says in the video, "I got a dream to to one day own my own shop." But this is one of the things actually that I really. Uh, I have to constantly be reminded of in terms of start small. Yeah. You know, people wonder sometimes, how can you do a, a small business loan for only $100 or $120, things like that? And the the way it's done is by starting so small, yep. you know, uh, and and then it grows from there. So I can't wait to see what's going to happen with this young man. It's really exciting. Um, if you want to learn more about that, by the way, just head to impactnations.com slash skills. You can read all about our skills and business programs and, and how those work. Uh, we've got them in a number of countries around the world. We're teaching skills. Uh, I, I don't know. We're up to 13, 14, something like that. number of different, different skills, different skills wow. that we're teaching wow. all over the place. So we've got more programs starting in uh, in. India just in the next few weeks teaching yeah, business and we're gonna uh, we're gonna go way over a thousand people getting uh, training this year I think I think so yeah yeah it's it's amazing to see how it's grown over the years it's yeah. really exciting and again sometimes I need to be reminded of the lasting impact you know we're, we're in close contact with these students when they're in our, our yeah our programs but sometimes to follow up with them a year later or something and just see how they're doing it's pretty cool. That's so, great. Impactnations.com slash skills to learn more about that. Okay. Uh, I I actually, again, I had other questions and then you kind of answered them. Maybe we'll touch back on them again anyway, but uh, just to go a little deeper. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about just the emotions of this, uh, mm. of the scenes that you walked us through today. Because you said to me earlier today just uh, that, again, in confronting the scene and processing it and studying it, uh, you were once again just uh, feeling sad. You're enveloped in sadness. You said, every time I come to this passage for 45 years, it has always just left me feeling sad. Yeah, it's true. Um, tell us a little bit about that, because that's actually, in one sense, that's quite remarkable to have encountered a text that many times over 45 years and to still be feeling those emotions. Um I think some might say, how do I connect to the text emotionally at that level? Because it's become too familiar. Yeah, I don't know how. How's that for an answer? <laughs> Perfect. Um, except I, I, I just, you I, know, I always I always try to remember before I, I read, 
especially the Gospels, mm-hmm. I just always try to say, Lord, make this real for me today yeah. and uh, breathe on this today. Because mm-hmm. you're right, I have no idea. 45 years of reading the Gospels, I've probably read that passage at least three or four times, right? <laughs> no, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Yeah. And yet, so only the Spirit can do that. Yeah. Uh, but it does. It hits me profoundly. You know, we... we uh, we took the Lord's Supper together last night with some friends, my house, mm-hmm. and as as I just as we were doing it, just tears were welling up in my, mm. and it was I know connected with where I spent all this week yeah. in the scriptures. Mm. Yeah. Speaking of emotions, we see you. You talked a little bit about the difference between repentance and regret. You talked about. Uh, you talked about Peter's tears, yeah, and I'm wondering just about repentance. And I think sometimes people wonder, have I truly repented? Uh, either have I truly, you know, am I truly saved? We've talked about that before, but more, perhaps more on a specific, like, ah, I messed up. Am I repentant? Like, do we need to be weeping and gnashing of teeth and beating breasts to be repentant? No. Uh, what are signs? Uh, I mean, even you pastored for a long time, and so probably you, you've recognized the difference between someone who really is truly repenting and, and perhaps is not. And What uh, Paul talks about is, is godly sorrow, mm. right? And uh, <sighs> repentance isn't measured by tears, yeah. though it often comes with tears. I think it begins with a deep, deep awareness and even that awareness is the work of the Spirit, of my own sin and my own failure. Um, David said, against you and you alone have I sinned, O Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts with a deep, not here, because we go, well, you know, I sinned, I'm responsible. That's a good thing. Yeah. But there's a deeper place. And I think repentance can sometimes come in layers, you know, just like forgiveness. I mean, that the work of the Spirit comes in layers. Um, And I hope I made it clear that repentance in the midst of our tears, it never abandons our hope in God, Mm -hmm. though we are bruised and we feel all kinds of things. Whereas remorse, I'll say ungodly sorrow, Mm. um, it leads to despair. I've, I've either I've done too badly, or I'm never going to change, or there's no hope for me, and none of those make room for the healing work of God. You talked a little bit about how Peter never forgot that Mm -hmm. moment and was often reminded. You know, every time he heard a rooster crow, sort of a thing. Yeah, there's a tension there. Can you walk us through this? Because repentance. Uh, should lead to a place of freedom, yep. like ah, I can put it behind me, and yet, at the same time, we almost we don't want to let go of that uh, memory of grace. Yes, in a sense. yes. How do we walk that fine line? It's really interesting, isn't it? It's like near the end, I I talked about uh, joy and sorrow meet mm-hmm. in these passages yeah. today. Um, I don't know. Again, I don't have good answers for this. But I, I know that even when I'm joyful for what he has done, um, I am I'm not presumptuous. Yeah. I recognize, you know, I I as you know my story, I I came to Christ as a married working man and um I very much came out of the world mm-hmm. and I knew and I continue to know what he rescued me from. Yeah. You know. And I think I'm sad for some of the mistakes that I made long ago, but I don't despair because I know they're forgiven. Yeah. But I go, oh, gee, the hurt I caused. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think maybe that's just kind of dancing around your question, but maybe that's a little bit. I'm so thankful for what he's done. Yeah. What he's done, the joy of what he's done has propelled me forward all these years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but... The joy comes in part out of the knowing how much he needed to do. Yeah. You know, and that's where the sorrow and the joy meet. Yeah. Mm, That's good. I have more questions, but I think I want to leave it there this week. I think I want us to just spend some time in that 
in that place where joy and sorrow mingle. Um, thanks for being with us this week. Uh, I would like to just remind you, as we do every week, that we have a conference coming up, and we'd really like for you to be here. Uh, we'd really like to, for you to be with us uh, here in Albuquerque, May 11 to 14. Uh, it's happening. Beautifulgospelconference.com is the place to register. Uh, we're seeing lots of registrations coming in from all over the place, from uh, from folks I don't even know. So I'm really excited because I think we're going to get to know some people that we've never even met before. So that's exciting. You, you know, I've been spending a lot of time when I'm not studying, yeah. uh, meeting with pastors and leaders of denominations. And mm-hmm. really what I've come to say to them is uh, what you've heard me say on this podcast, the river of God is wide. Yeah. But what I'm saying is what's bringing us together all across different church traditions and different nations Mm -hmm. is a common love for Christ and a desire to go deeper into experiencing him. And that's what ties us together as a group. That's what ties us with with Brad and Cherith and Brian. Mm -hmm. And so, folks, you will meet with folks from very different traditions, and we will be enriched by each other's insights. Uh, Beautifulgospelconference.com. Go today. Register. It's going to be awesome. Uh, By the way, I've said this before, but uh, even if you're here in Albuquerque, sign up for the meals. Like, I know you could go home and, and, you know, have some, a sandwich or something like that, but it's, it's so cheap. The meals are so cheap, but... The time together, yes. it, you, it's why you got to be here. Is be, because in addition to receiving fantastic teaching, in addition to spending moments of of meditating on what God is saying to us, we also need time to just be in dialogue about what God is saying. And we've said it here before many times. There's no better place than over a meal to to talk about what God's doing in our lives. So. And we're going to be doing uh, presenting some different folks. Uh, in the morning for the breakfast time as well. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Beautifulgospelconference.com. Did I mention that yet? (laughs) Sure hope you did. Uh, May 11 to 14 here in Albuquerque. We'd love to see you. Hey, thanks so much for being with us today. We are here every Thursday evening uh, around 6 p.m. on the YouTube, on the Facebook. Uh, If you get the audio, that's great. You can head to impactnations.com slash podcast and click subscribe right there. Or just, you know, if you're a regular podcast listener, you know what to do. Just go uh, find the podcast, Impact Nations Podcast, in your favorite podcast app. And we're right there. And hey, leave us a a little review while you're there. That always feels good. Um, You're always welcome to email us. We love hearing from you. Podcast at impactnations.com. Otherwise, we will see you again next week. Have a fantastic week.